Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Aren't you Norma Desmond? You used to be in pictures. You used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our great white way, some making a giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is an alum of the pod. His episode was the longest episode on record until the Phantom episode. So congratulations, sir. You have been usurped. Please welcome back Broadway music director and my good Judy, Justin Mendoza. I'm Matthew. Hi, Justin. What's I'm so going sad. On? Well, I'm sad that we're not face to face in person right now, but I know, you know, life gets in the way sometimes. Life gets in the way, indeed. Yes. How but I'm you? looking, I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking at your beautiful kitchen, your spice rack, which uh, normally is what I use to describe your pecs, but I mean your literal spice rack today. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, what are we talking about today? What musical? We are talking about, you know, I'm gonna, I was going to say something ridiculous, like the last one where I said Naughty Marietta, but today we're just going to go right for the kill. We're going, uh, we're talking about Sunset Boulevard. But if you did a double fake out, you're like, I'm going to go right for the kill. Today we are talking about Grind. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> we're, today we're talking about Leader of the Pack. No, we were talking about Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, yes. Yes. The... Which I have a question for you, Matt, actually, really quickly before we oh, okay. begin. Why are we doing an episode on Sunset when you famously did a, a brilliant episode a couple years ago? Well, it was a year ago, not a couple years ago. Because, okay. Justin, that episode of Sunset Boulevard 
was the obsession of one Mr. Matt Lisey. It was not necessarily uh, an analysis of the show as well as its structure in history and the British invasion. It was more general discussion of the show slash the reasonings for Matt's liking it and Matt's history with it. So this is a little more uh, academic, I would say. But and we're going to and a lot of the points that I made in that episode, I'm sure I'll make today. I forgot absolutely everything I said in that episode. I forgot as well. I think I loved it. And I think I agreed with with Matt. Right. Your 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 with guest. my guest, Matt Lisey. Yes. I don't remember anything he said or anything I said. I rem- <laughs> I know. Obviously, he loves it. It's his obsession. Uh, and I remember asking him point blank. Why? Why? And. I think there's an important distinction to be made with this show, with a lot of these shows and with art in general. And it's something that's kind of been popping up a lot with a certain movie adaptation of a Tony winning musical that's been making the rounds lately on social media. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yes. Well, I have spe- not seen. speaking of wanting to be younger than you are, essentially, Dear Evan Hansen, there was a really fascinating article when the movie came out from a critic that did not like the movie and liked the show, but also recognized that the two have a lot still in common and then kind of discussed the importance, the important distinction of liking something and objectively recognizing if it's good. Because sometimes the two do not match. You can like something and recognize it's not good or you can recognize something's good and not like it. Sure. Yeah. Or sometimes you can like not like something and it's bad or you can like something and it's good. All four things are possibilities in this world. Justin. Correct. Yes. Correct. And so you had said to me before we started recording that a contemporary of yours who shall rename who shall remain nameless because they're an idiot. Uh, they said <laughs> that Les Mis was trash, that it was garbage. And I famously said on this podcast that Les Mis is actually quite brilliant. You cannot like it because it is very... Uh, specifically a kind of musical. It's not, you know, they don't try to please everyone. They're not trying to have tap breaks and and too much comedic relief. It, they, it's very much a whole hog pop opera and it's very earnest and it's very melodramatic and either you're in or you're out. But whether you like it or not, objectively, you have to look at how it's put together and it is very well put together for the kind of show that it is. I can't give a fair bias because my parents took me to see Les when I was a kid and it changed my life forever. Like, honestly, it changed my life. Looking at that show um, steered the course of my career and my interests and how I viewed theater, mm-hmm. how I viewed art. Um, I will always think the world of Les and like, I'll watch it a million times. Yeah. Uh, even bootlegs. I love it. Give me that melodrama. Give it all You're to the me one right who- now. You're the one who sent me the Carmen Cusack video that I'm obsessed with. And I mentioned on the pod with Sutton. She's the best. She She's gets gr- the style of melodrama like to a T. She very much uh, rivals my personal favorite Fontaine, Ruthie Henschel. So, I mean, I could watch great. I could watch those two versions back to back till I die, which could be tomorrow for all we know. But <laughs> but You're do you so know what poetic. I mean? I am. First of all, your bias is the only thing that's bi about you. Second of all. <laughs> Insert laughter here. <laughs> <laughs> it's um no, but do you know what I mean when in terms of the distinction between liking something and recognizing if it's good? Because sometimes well, it's just a chemical reaction. Yeah. 
And so with Sunset, and it's, it's, it's appropriate to talk about this with Sunset because Justin, who is a fan of the pod, but has not listened to the British invasion because he's been very busy rehearsing Book of Mormon, getting it back on Broadway, Correct. which is not, this is not um, uh, hush hush news. You guys will be in rehearsals as this episode comes out. So yes, we're, we're not speaking out of school. You guys will be in the rehearsal room again. <laughs> and once again, Justin will be too busy to listen to his own episode. He'll contact me at the end of 2022. I finally got around to it. You know, you made some good points. <laughs> That's probably pretty accurate. No, yeah. Of course Christmas of 2022. But <laughs> with this series, Justin, since you haven't been listening, I've been mentioning a lot how with these British shows, both the musicals and the plays, because I have covered some plays here as well. What they tend to do really well is embrace the possibilities of theatrical storytelling things you can only get away with in a theater on a stage, which is why I think so many of these shows have such diehard fans and why so many of them also became worldwide phenomenons because they resonated with audiences in a way that there was no language barrier. There was no cultural divide. It's just, you know, pure emotion, pure uh, theatricality. And there's something to be said for that. How objectively good some of these shows are is something we shall also discuss. Uh, I just speaking of Weber, I mentioned with Evita, I don't think Evita is actually a very good musical, but when it's sung well and staged well, it's as thrilling as anything you could see. But when you look at it objectively, it doesn't really come together. I always say that, like, when things don't work on the page, that doesn't necessarily equate to whether it's a good or bad musical at all. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a big Sondheim freak, and I you. Think- Yes, indeed. And his shows, I think, could work around the kitchen table with nothing else, or it could work with a bombastic, huge set. And the material is just so good, it can stand on its own. Um, That obviously doesn't exist for most shows um, Mm -hmm. of the contemporary genre. Um, But you can't compare those type of shows to this genre, I think. The the British Invasions of the 90s, the melodrama... um, I don't even know what shows you've covered, honestly, on the podcast, but I assume it's like a lot of Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh. Yeah, right? Pompous Douche, Cameron McIntosh. There's been some Webber. So <laughs> this is, this is, I believe, the fourth and final Webber that we're covering. We've covered Evita, Cats, Phantom, and now this. Uh, we also covered Les Mis. Blood Brothers was the episode before this one. Oliver. Allie Gordon and I did an episode on the National Theater, which was really good. I did an episode on Noises Off. Uh, after, after this... Uh, episode so so, after, so everyone will know what the order is up until now because obviously it'll be on their podcast app or whatever but after this episode will be in order mama mia the history boys billy elliot matilda and then six and then that's the end and obviously there are other british shows that have, that have come in since then but i wanted to sign kind of find specific either moments in broadway history where uh, it was sort of, you know, um, what's the one we're looking for? Uh, uh, I, I'm, the words are gone. I've lost all my words. But certain moments in Broadway history with the British invasion that are very potent, very relevant, very important. And then also ones where maybe they don't seem like they made much of a mark on uh, Broadway, but made a big mark on the West End and kind of figuring out that uh, that difference. So, for example, 
the episode before this one, Blood Brothers, we talked about Brothers, that a lot sure. about like why Blood Brothers ran for 20 plus years and ran here for two years and made no money. And people why don't get now- that type of um, theater here. So, so they said a friend yeah. of mine, I think one of my teachers saw it here on Broadway and was like, it did not work for whatever it's, reason. Uh, Blood Brothers. <sighs> at this point, people have already heard all my thoughts. I don't have to go into it again, but I'll tell you off mic so the listeners don't have to hear it two weeks <laughs> okay. in a row. <laughs> but um, I would argue the Sondheim show that probably is the closest to these British invasion shows is Follies. And I'll tell you why, because I don't think Follies works in a black box with no set, no lighting and no costumes. Follies was written and was crafted to, once again, like these shows, embrace what you do in a theater. It's a love letter to theater as well as being sort of an obituary to theater. And in order to and uh, present that it has to really kind of take advantage of every way you can tell a story on stage, which is why I don't think a Follies movie would ever work, which is also why I think you need to kind of pull out all the stops when you're doing Follies. You know, you need to think of absolutely anything you can do on a on a musical theater stage and do it if you're going to do Follies, because that is what it's about. Uh, where something like Company, I think you could do it sort of, you know, with the bare bones, because it's not necessarily about the theater it's using mm-hmm. theater to tell a story follies is about theater and a lot of these british shows whether they realize it or not are kind of about theater they're they are using music hall they're using um panto they're using you know all the uh, gilbert and sullivan all the history of british theater to tell these stories and i think the shows that are the most effective maybe don't always work on the page, but they're effective because they channel what has been sort of um, the most uh, resistant to the weathering of time. Totally. I don't know if that made any sense to anybody, (laughs) but it made sense to me. And it channels this. So let's get into some shit because we, you and I have been talking forever already. This is going to be longer than Sweeney. Probably. Justine. What yes, is your history with Sunset? How did it come into your life? Sunset, I lump into the, the, the shows that got me into musical theater, a la Phantom, Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Jekyll and Hyde. Again, those bombastic, melodramatic musicals of the 90s. Mm. Um, it, was, it was that two-disc CD that I couldn't afford. Um, I think the first time I heard anything from Sunset was from... Once again, Barbara Streisand's Broadway album was her second Broadway album, and she's saying back to Broadway, yeah, and, yeah, the big, the big ones, um, and it has a little description saying like some about nor- they wanted Norman's car, like they mentioned that in the liner yeah. notes. So I was thinking, what is that? I didn't know it was a movie. Um, mm-hmm. It was Barbara belting out two big hits. They were written by Lloyd Webber, who wrote Phantom, and I was like, okay, sure. So mm-hmm. again, the Lloyd Webber compilations. Um, I eventually got around to getting the CDs, both of them, the Patty and the American premiere recording and just yep. fell in love with it. Why did, what do you mean you couldn't afford them? Why didn't you ask daddy to buy them for you? Um, I mean, I guess I could have, there was a, there was a CD store I used to go to all the time, but again, I couldn't just like buy whatever I wanted. You know, I had did, to. Did you not refer to your father as daddy? Like I did, daddy? if you called it, if you said daddy, the way that some people say daddy, I want an EGOT daddy. I used to say, say daddy, papa. papa, papa, daddy. I would really like a, I would like the two disc set of Sunset Boulevard, please, daddy. 
but I got so obsessed with it that, that I eventually um I bought the Betty Buckley for oh, her highlights yeah. EP and she signed it for me. She was actually appearing in San Francisco at one of the um independent record stores Ooh. and I bought the CD and I had her sign it. I still have it with me. So then two questions. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten to see the show on stage? I saw the show in 2017, the revival. When they did it at the palace, right, right, right. Correct. And then did you eventually see the movie? Oh, yes, I did see the movie. Um, okay. I, I think it was actually years later. I think it was probably in college or something. Okay. I finally got around to seeing the movie, which I loved. I mean, hot take. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. Film it's, noir, baby. I don't know when the show actually entered my life. Probably similar, Streisand, Back to Broadway. I remember being a child of the Cité and seeing a lot of theater. Playbill used to, they sometimes still do it. They used to have sort of um, photos from different Broadway shows at the front of the Playbill. So like when you went to like the table of contents, you would see a photo of like Beauty and the Beast, like Susan Egan and Terry Mann in costume for like a production still. Even if you were seeing, let's say, you know, like Showboat, their photo would be sort of towards the front of the Playbill. And then they would have the Ask Playbill section where, you know, people would write into Playbill and there would be more stills from other shows. So you would see something from Angels in America as well as Miss Saigon, even if you were seeing Les Mis. And there was one photo of Glenn Close in black and white. And she was in her New Ways to Dream outfit with the, you know, silver sparkly turban and coat with the mink cuffs. And her hands were sort of like looking up to the sky. as She looked up to the sky and with her white kabuki makeup, and sunken eye makeup she looked like a statue and I did not know what the show was and it scared the shit out of me and I could not get into it but then I listened to the two Streisand songs like oh that's nice and then I think actually before I ever even got into the show show I got into the movie because listeners of the pod are familiar with my own daddy Mr. Peter Koplik who they all know Folly is one of his favorite shows ever. Definitely his favorite Sondheim. He's a big movie guy and would sit me down and show me a lot of classic films. And a lot of them I gravitated towards quite naturally. I love uh, Sun, uh, Sun Like It Hot, The Apartment. He still tries to get me into the Americanization of Emily and I fall asleep every time. It's a <laughs> real sticking uh, point of our relationship that it's one of his favorite movies and I can't stay awake but Sunset Boulevard he showed me and I really loved it and then I think eventually I listened through the whole uh American premiere recording did not Mm. necessarily care for it but that was sort of it I kind of called it a day and I knew some more of the songs over time through college we had we had a couple of weeks in college where we had to do a Lloyd Webber presentation where everyone had to sing a Lloyd Webber song and most people try to like kind of take it seriously, but me and my best friend at the time got into our leopard print Snuggies and sang with one look together and did sort of a <laughs> mimed dance that we did in unison. And now, when you went to school, did Lloyd Webber get a lot of flack for being yes. like bad materials? He's same. I also had a teacher who was a pompous asshole and really wanted to kind of make us all feel smarter than the rest and go, well, everyone knows that it's sun time and, you know, Cantor and Ebb is also really good and you can't go wrong with Aaron's and Flaherty, but, you know, Weber, hack, Jason Robert Brown, uh, he's too much. Uh, just things like that. And it's, I'm sort of more of the mind frame of like, there's value in various kinds of works 
Uh, I, I'm not one to say like everything has its merits. Like, no, so I do think some things are trash. I've said so on the podcast, but I don't discriminate per writer. I think every writer has something or has the potential to give something. And while I do not necessarily care for Sunset, there's a lot of Weber that I do like. And I like some of his music in this. Uh, he can but, write a good melody, that's for sure. Like he also can orchestrate like a motherfucker. Sure, these orchestrations are sense that are amazing. Sorry, let me rephrase that for um, any potential people trying to come into Justin's life. He can orchestrate like a person who knows how to orchestrate. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly no, he, does. Yeah, because I would argue a lot of his songs don't necessarily have a build. It's sort of melody, 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 bridge, melody, melody, which is very old school, but there's not a big dramatic structure to them all. But the way he orchestrates them gives them that that build, which I think is very impressive. Uh, But yes, so you in school, they said to you, no Weber. And you said, no, madam, I disagree. I think I sang Sunset Boulevard, the title song in class. Of course you did. Of (laughs) course you did. Because were you out yet at that point? No. That would do it. Certainly not. That would do it. You were trying to assert your masculinity to your class. (laughs) Sunset Boulevard, headline Boulevard, getting here is only the beginning. Sunset Boulevard, jackpot Boulevard, once you've won, you have to go on winning. Sold out dead right. I've sold out. I've just been waiting for the right offer. Comfortable quarters, regular. So, Sunset Boulevard. It is a musical. Yes? It is a musical. Some might say it's a musical. Music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, book and lyrics by Don Black and Christopher Hampton, based on the film written by Billy Wilder, Charles Brackett, and DM Marshman Jr., directed by Billy Wilder. I'm going to talk about the film for a quick second, and it's very important that I do as we discuss the show because the two shall be compared constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie came out in 1950, uh, filmed in 1949, and it was the brainchild of Billy Wilder, who was riding high and a lot of success with uh, Ball of Fire, and then especially with Double Indemnity, which really kind of uh, set in stone the uh, structure and concept of film noir. Like, double listeners, like, see that movie. That movie is freaking amazing. See that first, movie. It's if awesome. you don't, listeners, if you don't know who Barbara Stanwyck is, pause this episode right now, bang your head against the wall as punishment for being an uncultured fuck, and then promptly <laughs> watch yes. Double Indemnity, Stella Dallas, Ball of Fire, Lady Eve, maybe an episode or two of, um, was she on Dallas Dynasty? No, she was on something. What was the TV show she did? She I've did the only Thorn seen her in Double Indemnity. That's the only movie of hers you've seen? Yeah. Uncultured fuck. Mm-hmm. She's, yep. She is perhaps my favorite actress of that era because she and Vivian Lee really give performances at that time that resonate today where you're like, this is what acting is today. Like they were doing in the 1940s, what actors are doing now. You have like, like your Rosalind Russell's and his girl Friday was like, ah, I'm not your business, see? And you have Barbara Stanwyck, who's fully just being a natural person. Mm-hmm. It's craziness. Anyway, Billy Wilder uh, is from Europe. He is not from America, which is really interesting when you realize like a lot of the films he's made are feel so American and also are like just so eloquent when you realize that English was his second language that he kind of learned how to speak English while on the sets of Hollywood films. It's it's the fact that he kind of learned so quickly and was able to express himself so perfectly is 
really disheartening to us who learned English growing up and can't put words together like myself. But Wilder uh, kind of came of age in Berlin in the 1920s and early 30s. And his only insight into American culture was through Hollywood films, first the silent films and then the talkies. And he was sort of taken with the grandeur of them all, the uh, vibrancy, the gayness of all of these movies. And when he came to Los Angeles in the 30s and started working in the Hollywood industry, he would drive up and down Sunset Boulevard and see these big garish mansions of the movie stars of the 20s. And he would think to himself, what happened to those people? Because they were so famous and they were so celebrated. And the movie industry is one where it did not begin as this, uh, you know, extravagant business. It was profitable and it was well-liked. But once the silent film era began of the late teens, early 20s, it really exploded and became sort of like the ultimate business of opulence and grandeur and elegance and just everyone desired to be in it, to have it. And the star system and the studio system kind of was born and toxicity reigned for years. So as I said, in the 40s, Billy Wilder kind of thought of the idea of what happened to these people who were just like so celebrated for so long and then dropped like a hot pancake, hot potato. And he had the idea of a silent film actress who was forgotten, but not gone. And instead of gone, but not forgotten, forgotten, but not gone. And what would happen to her? And they couldn't get an actress of a certain age to do the movie for a long time because they really wanted an actress of the uh, late teens, early 20s era to star in it. They wanted Mary Pickford. They wanted Mae West. They wanted even Greta Garbo. None of them would touch it because it was the story of, what's the story, Justin, of Sunset Boulevard? A faded... Um star of yesteryear who has been hiding for decades yeah and, like uh, 20 years 20 years and um she gets discovered by a writer who stumbles upon her house mm-hmm. and um she falls in love with this man and i'll think also thinking that he can help her with her script which is atrocious that she yes. wants to have her big comeback she hates that word it's a return it's a return to return um and what ensues after that it's a it, it's film noir to its uh to a t it's amazing yes. and, and we'll get into more of the uh mechanics machinations mechanics i don't know of sure. the plot as we can as we discuss the show a bit more but that is the general gist and so the idea of a faded silent film actress who's already kind of on the edge mentally that was enough for a lot of these women to balk at and on top of that she has this uh, kept boy affair with Joe Gillis, the writer who is like all, probably like 20 years younger than she is, which was very shocking at the time. So all these women were like, how dare you? I would never do this. And then they reach out to Gloria Swanson, who was a silent film actress who was very popular. And as the talkies came in, she realized that sort of Hollywood was done with her and she made her peace with it. And she moved to New York and she did radio and she did stage. And she was like, I'm good. I'm fine. And they send her the script. She likes the script and they go, great. Well, will you do a screen test? Cause she hadn't done that many talking pictures. And she was like, I have 30 films you can look at. That's my screen test. And George Cukor said to her, if they ask you to do 12 screen tests, you do it. For those of you who don't know George Cukor, he was also a film director. He did my fair lady. He did half of gone with the wind. He did, uh, I believe the women, he did Philadelphia story. He was very well known for being an actress's director. He was really good at treating his leading ladies well and directing them to Oscar wins. 
So Gloria Swanson does it. She gets the part. The movie was very scandalous because it was the first mainstream film to really kind of attack Hollywood and what it and what sort of went into making movies and into making stars. And this also came out the same year as All About Eve, which did the same thing, but with Broadway. Both were very cynical views of the entertainment industry from different coasts, Broadway, Hollywood. All About Eve did a more sardonically bitchy take where Sunset Boulevard was more noir melodrama. And I talked to my dad about this after watching it again last night, because he says, well, what about A Star is Born? That kind of takes a cynical view of Hollywood. And I said, yes, but A Star is Born, especially the first one, not the Judy one, but the first one, it's kind of having it both ways because it discusses how people can fail really miserably in Hollywood. And it sort of shows the star system in effect, but it shows the star system in effect in a positive light and makes a star of the female counterpart. And the male counterpart, while Hollywood is sort of done with him, it is implied that it's partly his own fault for being an alcoholic, for being unreliable. And it's, you know, A Star is Born is less like Hollywood bad and more like, listen, you can make it in Hollywood or you may not. Sunset Boulevard is like, it's almost impossible to make it here. And then if you make it here, it's almost impossible to maintain that especially if you're a woman, which no one ever discussed before and took a long time for more films to kind of pick up on that. You know, we have people talk about like the, the comeback with Lisa Kudrow and sort of what that says about women of a certain age in Hollywood. I'm like Sunset Boulevard did it first. Granted, it did it a lot more over the top, but, you know, there's a there is a parallel there. These two women who are very desperate to get back to what they were to have what they once had in an industry that has already said that they're done with them and treats them despicably, uh, not just because they're a woman, but because they're a woman of a certain age. And on top of that, like one that they don't respect. And so it shows how just like any business, any uh, part of the world, the um, toxicity of it all. Also, Billy Wilder said about the movie, it's about a man who wants a pool, gets a pool and then dies in a pool. With Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson got a big career resurgence and came back into the public spotlight. And she tried to continue that by making a musical version of Sunset Boulevard herself called Boulevard! Exclamation point. I've and heard of this, this is, yes. Yes. And this is the kind of musical where they were trying to make it a musical comedy and have it lighter with a happier ending. So Joe doesn't die and uh, Norma... Desmond, the faded film star, lets Joe go off into the sunset with Betty Schaefer. And you can hear a little bit of it uh, on YouTube. You can also hear a little bit of it in the Sunset Project, which we will discuss as we discuss the legacy of this show as well. I'm glad we're talking about that. Yes, that's a yes. great podcast. It's a very good podcast. Uh, there was a song, the opening number was called Those Wonderful People Out There in the Dark, which is one of the most terrifying lines in the film. So the fact that they made it the opening number and made it like jolly just shows how wrongheaded they were. They also never officially had the rights from Paramount to make it. So at some point after a few years, Paramount's like, okay, we let you guys toy with this for a while, but you're done. We're not letting you do this. So Gloria Swanson kind of had to uh, do find work elsewhere and let go of Sunset Boulevard. In the 60s, Stephen Sondheim wanted to make a musical out of it and was starting to work on it and then ran into Billy Wilder at a party and said, oh, I've been working on a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. And Billy Wilder says, you can't make it a musical. It's an opera. He says it's about a dethroned queen. And even at the time he was making the movie, Billy Wilder said like, 
it, it's an opera without singing already. And he even said then like to make it a musical would be gilding the lily, like everything that needs to be sung is said. And the music enhances that as a background, not and as atmospheric. You, like if you sing it, it just becomes a little too much, which thoughts. So Sondheim abandons that because Sondheim also hates opera. And he's like, I don't want to write an opera, so I'm not going to write this. Hal Prince then says a few years later, I think around the time of Company and Follies, he's like, we should do a sunset musical. And Sondheim's like, uh-uh. Wilder says it's an opera. I don't want to write an opera. So uh, Hal Prince looks towards Candor Neb at one point. They thought about maybe making it uh, a vehicle for Angela Lansbury, transferring it from the film industry to the theater industry, making it her. She's a faded musical comedy star that doesn't ever really work out. And then around Avita, Angelo Rubber sees Sunset Boulevard on TV, which apparently he had never seen before, because I guess the movie was not as big of a cultural touchstone there as it was here, which makes sense. Mm. He sees it on TV and he thinks to himself, that would make a good show. And he writes a tune for it, only to find that the rights are not available and he's busy with other things at that time. He then finally gets a hold of the rights. And he decides he wants to produce this on his own with his co- production company, The Really Useful Group, or RUG, as it's commonly known. He didn't want to do any more shows with pompous douchebag Cameron McIntosh. He wanted all the glory and all the money to himself and prove that he was his own uh, enterprise. He wasn't just the composer. He was the leading force of everything. It was an Andrew Lloyd Webber show. I'm not entirely sure why once Andrew Lloyd Webber got the rights he didn't include Hal Prince after because they had discussed Sunset Boulevard as a musical I don't know why he didn't ask Hal Prince to direct it instead he got Trevor Nunn maybe he knew that Hal Prince would be too expensive or that Hal Prince would ask for total autonomy for Sunset and then like anything Hal said would go and Andrew probably wanted all the control mm-hmm. but you needed you need an American on that production team I feel it's very a lot of British people doing an American show. It's maybe it's their payback for us having so many Americans doing my fair lady. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. And Camelot, they're like, you took our culture and you made musicals out of it. Now we're going to take your culture. But Angela rubber gets a young aspiring lyricist named Amy powers, who was a former real estate lawyer. And now she wanted to be a lyricist. He gets her to be his lyricist for the first run of Sunset, where they do a presentation of the first act at Sidibenton, his estate, uh, where he always does, you know, little production presentation workshops of his upcoming musicals for industry insiders and like the little church that he sort of revamped as a theater. They did a production of Phantom there. Uh, They did a concert of Cats there. So they do one of the first act of Sunset. Amy Powers, her inexperience as a lyricist was sort of coming through. She wasn't, she did not know how to make lyrics scan on Andrew Lloyd Webber's music. And if you are working with Andrew Lloyd Webber, you need to write your lyrics to his music. You do not write the lyrics and he applies music to it. You have to make your words fit how he sees fit. So they bring in Christopher Hampton. Uh, no, sorry. They bring in Don Black, Don who, Black. Had done, who had done Song and Dance and Aspects of Love with Andrew Lloyd Webber to assist Amy Powers uh, before the Sidmonton presentation. Uh, they do the first act. Andrew Lloyd Webber fires Amy Powers. He neglects to tell Amy Powers this. She has to find out about it from her agent who read it in the post or with Cindy Adams or something like that. And 
Don Black remains, and they do bring on Christopher Hampton after that, who had who's probably at this point best known for writing the play Les, Li- Les Liaisons Dangerous and the movie version of that, Dangerous Liaisons, hmm. starring one Glenn Close. Hold on to that hat in just a second. Uh, they Star work related. on the show. F- yeah, <laughs> they work on the show for about a year and do another presentation at Sidmonton, the whole show this time with one Miss Patu Lupin and mm-hmm. Sir Kevin Anderson. It goes very well. Meryl Streep's in attendance. And that was more just, you know, because she was there and accepted an invitation. She had no skin in the game. But of course, Angela Weber and Rug, they decided the same thing with Sunset is what they is what um, Robert Stigwood did for Evita. Make all the press be about who's going to be Norma, who wants to be Norma. All these women want to be Norma. All these major actresses want to be Norma. Shirley MacLaine, Liza Minnelli, Meryl Streep. Everyone wants Norma. Patty LuPone's like, I was literally offered the role. Why are they releasing all these press statements saying like, who's going to be Norma? But they they make it Patty. And then we all sort of know what happens there. Patty is given a contract for London. She demands London and Broadway. They give her that. But then they decided last second they're going to do a Los Angeles production starring Dangerous Liaisons' is Glenn Close. Patty has a lot of turmoil getting to the stage. She opens, gets sort of positive mixed and negative reviews but Andrew Lord Weber gets very upset because Frank Rich comes to see it gives the show a terrible review gives Patty a bad review but he doesn't say that necessarily she's bad because it's her fault he says she's not really right for the role but on top of that Andrew Lord Weber has written a score that is not right for Sunset Boulevard and not right for an actress who should be playing this role he's like this should be Angela Lansbury this should be Cheetah Rivera but unfortunately Angela Weber is more interested in writing power ballads that go up to high E's and thus neither of these women can play this role he needs someone of that stature Andrew Weber hears this and he goes right change the keys and don't get a theater legend got it uh so instead he goes with Glenn Close he fires Patty neglects to tell Patty same thing with Amy Powers Patty sues for a million dollars Faye Dunaway is going to replace Glenn Close in Los Angeles they fire Faye Dunaway and close the show in LA Faye Dunaway sues gets a lot of money they bring it to Broadway with Glenn not with Judy Kuhn as Betty Schaefer, unfortunately, but we'll get into her in a minute. Um, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of fast forwarding here, guys, because truly the saga of getting Sunset Boulevard to Broadway is insane. And it's nine hours long. And if you want the in-depth version of that, listen to the Sunset po- uh, Project with Broadway Bob. It's very exciting. And it's done a nice short 17 minute episodes, unlike this podcast. We're this trying to talk 17 about 17 minutes of talking. <laughs> this this was just 17 minutes of me trying to get through the shit show that is getting the show on the stage. Needless to say, the show has been drenched in scandal from the word go. Uh, and it opens in the 1994-1995 season. It opens at the Minskoff Theater, November 17th, 1994, with a $35 million advance. And I believe a price tag of $10 million. I believe it cost $10 million to stage it Um on Broadway, in addition to the seven million in LA and the six million in London. Ugh. So, Justin. Yes, sir. Let's let's, let's go from a for a simple qu- uh, answer here. What is your favorite song in Sunset Boulevard? Oh gosh. Um. My favorite song. I don't think I have a favorite song. I don't look at it like songs. Although you know the. The obvious answer would be with one look or as if we never said goodbye. But I think the piece is equally melodramatic. I, I like the piece as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't like, I, I think it'd be foolish at this point to take those songs away and sing them like at a concert or, I mean, you can sing them in class for college, but like 
you would never see someone's evening where they sing with one look as a standalone song unless it was someone like barbara or something like at her comeback concert or something you know what i'm saying yeah Um, and doing it in that original key so the barbara back to broadway thing was uh a thorn in patty's side because before patty even got on stage Angela River gave Barbara Streisand permission to record with One Look and As If We Never Said Goodbye for her album before the show even opened. And so that was playing on the airwaves and apparently playing on the hold music at the box office in London when people were trying to get tickets. So Patty had to already compete with Barbara Streisand's versions eight times a week. I mean, I don't find either song to really be good theater songs, though. They're not good storytelling songs. They're arias in the way that, you know, opera does arias, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a statement song over and over and over again. I say this with Phantom, you know, wishing you were somehow here again is basically three minutes of my dad's dead and I miss him. And there's no real change. There's no structure. You don't learn anything new beyond that one statement. And the same is true of both of these songs. And I feel like they would work better if Sunset committed wholeheartedly to being an opera, but it doesn't really, because there is still dialogue in there, like long See, that's patches the thing. of it. If it came out at a time when we we want one of these big hits that don't really say anything, you know how much I love Les Mis, but mm-hmm. I Dreamed a Dream doesn't really say that much. It gives a little backstory, but it's just one sentiment. On my own, it's just one sentiment. Um you know what I'm saying? Music of the Night is just a very flowery one sentiment. But, so is With One Love, so but, is... Blah, blah, blah. But on my own, I would argue has a good structure because it's the establishment of she's on, she is alone in the street and then here's what I do when I'm alone in the street. I think of him and it's two verses of her all sweet in her own fantasy and then it turns where she gets angry and bitter and says, I know that this is fake and like it pisses me off, but I but I also still have hope. And then it ends on a very kind of uh, somber note. I dreamed a dream, I think is more sort of variations on the theme. You know, Fontaine had a dream and then the dream stems from the love that she lost, but still she dreams of that love coming back to her. So like there are turns you can make where something like music of the night, I don't know what turns you can make. Here's the thing. You're not wrong. Everything you said is totally correct. However, I think still lumping those songs together, like people don't really necessarily, unless you're uh, an actor, get into that. They just want to hear the note. They want to be satisfied. And it doesn't really matter. Yes. Like there are, there's depth on my own that doesn't exist and say with one look, but like when my dad is sitting there in the theater, he just wants to hear this like pretty song that leaves the high note, you know what I'm saying? And that's what I think the purpose of those songs were because you don't really need those songs. With one look, she says one thing, but like you're captivated. She's like literally having the audience stare at her just like she does in the movie, you know, like, yeah. And then you get a high note at the end, executed hopefully well, um, a la Patty <laughs> a la Patty Lupone, you know? Right. That's exciting. It's thrilling. So and like, okay. For. And well, so Sunset Boulevard for me is a weird beast because it is both diva worship and also diva tormenting because mm-hmm. where is the movie so okay <sighs> my brain is all over the place if you watch the movie version of sunset boulevard and i say this because the musical cues very closely to it uh you know they maybe cut 
two or three scenes from the movie and they add one or two of their own but otherwise it's the exact same plot points same structure a lot of the dialogue from the film is used verbatim for recitative uh frank rich i think he said at one point in his review that it was faithful to the point of artistic imprisonment because there's no real interpretation it's all just there but then also i think that's a good idea though because there's a theatricality to the movie so i think to make it a musical is a good idea because you get to extract that theatricality onto the stage and add music the the problem is that billy wilder was one of the most ingenious intelligent creatives and nobody who worked on sunset is up to his level Mm -hmm. i will say that wholeheartedly uh and i'll say that on record because moments in the movie that make a very specific point a very succinct point get belabored in the show and on top of that a lot of them don't even understand the point of it so i will come back to with one look in just a second but so a prime example of this is the song the lady's paying which sure it's a bop and i do like how (laughs) i do like how it's arranged it's a bop i prefer how it's arranged the same exact song is arranged for eternal youth is worth a little suffering if only because it's shorter but and surrender as well that's like variations on that theme as well it is it is literally the same melody as surrender you're absolutely right I have just something for you. Chuck stripes, suits in black or blue. Leather trousers, cashmere sweater, bathing shorts, the valuable. We have dry heat, we have steam, we have moisturizing cream. We have mud packs, we have blood sacks. It's a rigorous regime, not a wrinkle when you twinkle. But again, that was the trend of the day. Yes, yes, no, 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 the, so the lady's paying comes from a line in the movie, which is, so, okay, Joe Gillis is a down-on-his-luck screenwriter. He had come to Hollywood. He was talented. He had had some success, but it was all, you know, not the success he wanted. He, was, he had made some B pictures. The scripts that he had written got butchered by the studio system. And so when I made it to the screen, it wasn't what he wrote. And so he never really gets anywhere. And when we meet him, he is completely broke. He actually owes $300 to debt collectors. They were trying to get his car. He's trying to find a job at Paramount. No one will give him a job. And outrunning the debt collectors in his car, he pulls into Norma Desmond's driveway in her giant mansion and ends up, he thinks that he is conning her by agreeing to help her with her own screenplay, which is this 600 page messy epic about Salome, where she intends to play the lead role, despite the fact that she's 50 and Salome is 16. But they call her Salome in the movie, correct? Yes, it's Salome in the movie. You're right. Uh, so he agrees to help her with the screenplay and, and in exchange for, obviously, a lot of money. He says, oh, I, I'm booked and I'm very expensive. I make $500 a week, expecting her to pay him every week. And then eventually he'll just piece on out of there. But he ends up getting in too deep because while she pays for everything, she never actually pays him. She pays off his debts. She pays the rent on his apartment and she starts buying him things, but she never actually gives him money. So he has all this stuff, but he is cash poor. And then over the course of the film, he starts to become a kept boy. Uh, and it start, happens slowly. But the moment that it really kind of crystallizes is when they're in the car driving around uh, LA and they go to a men's store and She's finding all these things that she wants him to wear because, you know, he's dressed like a 1940s, you know, dude would wear. He wears, you know, kind of a slightly shabby, shabby suit, a, probably a Brooks Brothers 
uh, shirt and that's it. But she's putting him in, uh, you know, like Huna. But yeah, well, see, she's putting him in, in tuxedos and like things that you would see in a 1920s like flapper film, just really like off, like extravagant, extravagant clothes. And one of the salesmen comes up to him and he's like, Well, we've got cashmere, we've got this, we have Vicuna, which is very, very expensive. And he's like, He's like, I'm fine with whatever the cheapest one is, I don't really want the expensive one. And there's a beat, and the guy looks at him and he goes, As long as the lady's paying, why not take the Vicuna? And sort of uh joe played by william holden shoots him a look and it's the harsh moment where he realizes the nail has been put in the coffin with him because in outsider can tell that he's basically become a rent boy this musical takes that line and makes it a three and a half minute shopping fashion montage makeover romp which is totally not the point of the line and it's you know this big ebullient number where a very femme store owner comes in with his assistants and they make over Joe. And every time they just kept saying like, you know, uh, all you need to know is the lady's paying. And Norma's like, I'll choose after all I'm paying. And it's just like, it's not, it, it just doesn't get what that line was about. And there's a lot of that in Sunset Boulevard, the musical for me, where they so don't those two get moments I skipped on the CD. Those are the only two songs that I pretty much skipped, except I like to hear Glenn Close screaming, Shut up, uh, I'm rich. Yes, correct. That might be my the most hysterically campy line of all time. Shut up, I'm rich, not some platinum blonde bitch. It's and uh, and she plays it so followed by the next line. I have so, I many, so apartments. many apartments. <laughs> I forgot which is which is which. I mean, it's, it's absurd. And she plays a cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Forget that I'm a writer. Who cares what you wear when you're a writer? I can't, Joe, and please don't be so mean to me. Okay, all right. See, that's why I think this musical is it works because of its absurdity. Um, so okay, it's so okay. heightened. Okay, go ahead. I'm gonna no, no, no. You're right. You're, yeah, Justin's walked away because he's tired of hearing me talk. But, <laughs> but this is this is going into my next thing about the show. As I said, the movie is more about Hollywood. That is really what it's kind of talking about. It's about the the loss of dreams and the delusions of people. Nancy, so basically, Nancy Olson said uh, the movie is about two things. One, it's how everyone is an opportunist. Everyone in the film is trying to find an opportunity and grab it for themselves. Uh, you know, for Betty, it's she wants to be a writer. So she sees Joe and sees this as an opportunity to get her foot in the door. Joe wants to have luxury, sees Norma. That's an opportunity. Norma wants to get back into the movies and also wants someone to, you know, have sex with her again. So that's Joe. And on top of that, it's about sort of how difficult it is to survive in Hollywood because Hollywood just will just use you. The star system in Hollywood was- You have you know, those three different lenses of how you see that system. You have Ben yeah. Schaefer, who's 19, Joe, who's 30-something, and Norma, who's 50. Yeah, and, and Norma is someone who has had success and had it taken away from her. And as far as Joe's concerned, she has everything she could ever want. She has money. She never has to worry about anything. But that's not enough for Norma, Norma because when you think about it, celebrity is, a, is something that shouldn't really happen. It's people who, for one reason or another- 
get held up to the sky as you are now someone that we've all agreed upon to know and love and admire. And especially when you hear stories about Norma's fame, 17,000 letters a day, a Maharaja who uh, came to America to grab one of her stockings and then hung himself with it, hanged himself with it. Uh, Men who would bribe beauticians uh, to get a lock of her hair. So to go to that kind of high, you, at some point you start believing your own hype, right? And especially that kind of hype. And then to have it for so long and then taken away, what do you do with that? You become a shell of a human being because all you are is a commodity to, to the movie system, right? The only reason why you were brought up to the sun by a studio system to the rest of the world is because they need you to sell their movie. If they can make the rest of the world feel that you are important, people will come see you in the movie that they are making. Once they have decided you are no longer necessary to make a movie, they will drop you. It doesn't matter if people loved you, they'll forget about you in two weeks. And that is the lens of the film. Norma is not a disgusting, pitiful figure. She is someone to be pitied, but she is not pitiful. She's tragic, but there's still a lot of respect and kindness shown to her. Gloria Swanson is kept up very nicely. She looks like a human being. She is a well put together 50 year old woman. She only really snap snaps at the end when, you know, Joe leaves her and then she's told all the things about the car and and all that other stuff. But she still sort of has her dignity. The worst thing you could say about the Norma of the movie version is she has no sense of humor, especially not about herself. She's very Jenna Maroney in 30 Rock, which I don't know if you're a 30 Rock person. I'm assuming not. No. Uh, I've been told. I I know. I'm sure I would. But for anyone who watches 30 Rock, Jenna Maroney is literally Norma Desmond. She's trying to be younger than she is. She's trying to hold on to fame. She's always trying to be in the spotlight. And she's always performing. Norma in the film is always acting like there's a camera on her. And it's especially as someone who learned how to act in the silent era where it was all about faces and it's all about your body movement. It's not necessarily about your words. It's why she's always kind of a little bit larger than life. It's not so much that she's outwardly insane so much as that she's just always performing. She's never being real. Well, see, so because there's no camera on stage, you you can't quite act like that. You have to level it up, if you will. So you can justify all the theatrics and the absurdity of this Broadway production of it and and the parallels between Hollywood and just show business in general, you can apply it to the stage. I think it's a perfect transfer. Um, For me, it's hard to tell what's the show and what's Glenn Close because (laughs) Glenn Close's interpretation of Norma for me is unintentionally hysterical. And I think actually really against the point of it she she talked about it with her makeup for it that she was really inspired by walter Matthau's wife who used to be an actress and like apparently had um you know the most beautiful white porcelain skin in her youth and as she got older she started putting on heavier and heavier white makeup to the point that like if you look up photos of walter Matthau with his wife in the 80s and 90s she looks extremely odd like she's very clearly heavily pancaked but obviously when she looked in the mirror she looked like her 20-year-old self again. And Glenn Close said that that's sort of how she always viewed her Norma. Norma's makeup was grotesque because she was trying so desperately to look like she did in 1922. So she looks in the mirror, she sees Norma of 1922, whereas the rest of us see a gargoyle. Mm -hmm. I, uh, it really bugs me 
because I feel like it robs Norma of any dignity that she could possibly have in a in a story where she is very much the most deluded of the characters present. She needs to be given some sense of dignity, some sense of kindness. And I'm not always sure if the show does that. Um, Again, I think the show on stage like needs broader strokes than that in a way. Like you can analyze it the way we, we we pull apart Shakespeare, but it's it's not almost you can't look at it that way. You just have to look at this big wash. And so you can arguably see that because there's no detail, you have to be larger than life in an already larger than life character. And now mm-hmm. the medium is bigger. You're not having a camera to like look at those wrinkles and see like like Gloria Swanson. You're an audience. So the look is like to a look of like. 2000 people as opposed to like right in the camera where she's looking right into your soul. So I think what it is, is that ultimately it's an, it's a storytelling device that doesn't work for me, which is why I'm picking it apart. Cause if something works for you, even if you can recognize flaws, you kind of let it go. Mm-hmm. I'm all for grandeur. And so this, there's a difference between um, what Patty was trying to do and what Glenn did. And obviously in 1994, it worked more for others uh with Glenn than with Patty. Patty talked about in her memoir, I really wanted Norma to be a human being. I didn't want to make her a drag queen because by that point, there was a lot of memories of Gloria Swanson's performance that aren't really real. People think about the final scene and they think about Carol Burnett on the Carol Burnett show, you know, where she's like, <laughs> yeah. Max, 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 don't let them take my picture. And like Gloria but what Swanson- were Patty's reviews though? She well, didn't so, get reviewed well, well right? I'm not saying that I like Patty's performance in the beginning of her run. I think Patty's a little too subdued. It, Gloria Swanson in the beginning of the movie, she is very kind of calm and grand and a little uh, ridiculous, but there's sort of a stateliness about her. She gets bigger as the movie continues. She like she, There is a camp element to that. I think when Patty started the show, and also part of this is misdirection, I think Trevor Nunn was too busy dealing with the spectacle of the show to deal with her. She talks about how like everyone in the castle was kind of thrown out to see when preview started. They like got on stage and like, oh, the performance I was giving in the rehearsal room doesn't play anymore, but no one's telling me what to do differently. So when you watch videos of Patty early in the run, it's a little too low on energy. It's too, it's, she's trying too hard to make it a realistic film performance. Whereas for me, Glenn is too far in the other direction where it changes. And we talked about this this morning is when Patty got fired and she still had like a month and a half left of the run, you listen mm-hmm. to the audio of her final performance. And for me, it's that perfect balance of theatrical grandeur, but with real human emotion there. So it's not so much that she's playing a drag queen. She is playing a broken, vulnerable, larger than life person. So the the energy is big, but it's still grounded in reality in some way, right? She mm-hmm. she is a larger than life figure living in the real world.
see, I hate saying this, but like the thing that takes me out of it is Glenn Close's vocals. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about 2017. I'm talking about 1990, whatever. Like that is not it. If you get it on stage, you have to have a larger than life actress and a larger than life vocalist. You mm-hmm. have to. So like, honestly, that was why I didn't listen. My, my um, recording of choice was the Patty, even though it wasn't like the correct one. I think yeah. they made a lot of good changes for the Broadway transfer or whatever, but like Glenn's vocals are almost unlistenable. Yeah. I think Glenn does not sound good on her cast recording. She sounds better in the bootlegs that you can find of her on stage. It's she sounds great on that. Um, it's like a happy birthday, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Version. The, yeah. The, the Andrew Lloyd Webber birthday concert. She does a really lovely job there. That's the she best she's good. ever sounded. Like, yeah. I wish we got that on the cast recording, or at least I don't know what it was, Same. you know, live, but yeah. It, but it, it so, this is all, it all comes back to Carousel, don't it? I'm very aware that my favorite Billy Bigelow is Michael Hayden, the one who is the most dragged vocally of all the Billies. I don't dislike his singing voice. I think he sings everything just fine. It's not the vocal heft of John Wright, but what have you. It's more, what makes it work for me is the blend of the voice and the acting combined give me a performance that is resonant, right? I, Carousel is not a melodrama that but way. The, like it's but, arguably way deeper. Yes, you can't yes, but, go but, too deep, you know. But yes, yes, you're saying all the things. With sunset. Yeah, the Sorry, other thing ahead. is that the other thing is that with Carousel, there's actual meat there. There's a lot to go off of. Yes. It does, it's not just purely the vocals. I'd argue the musical version of Sunset because I find it a rather shallow adaptation of the movie, effective to many, effective to many. And I will, and I will admit, like when I listen to some moments of it, whether I can see how it makes sense plot wise or if I think it's intelligent, there are moments that I'm like, work, bitch. Uh, you know, like it, it doesn't matter if I think as uh, as if we never said goodbye is a good or bad song. Anytime I listen to a good vocalist saying I've come home at last, that is just baller. That is wonderful. But that's also the diva worship of it. Correct. All, right? like, it is an audience applauding Betty Buckley coming downstage and hitting a C. It's the audience at Patty's last night saying we're here for you. We love you. It's that diva worship. But that goes hand in hand with the whole show. Like, give me that extraneous, ridiculous, just hold out the note as long as you can. So when Betty sings, I'd come home and holds out that home on the EP, the one that I had her sign. The um, one where she said, hold it for like 25 seconds. Yeah. 25 seconds. And like, that's Norma Desmond on stage. So just give it to me. Like be yeah. so much that it's like, so I don't mind Glenn Close's kabuki acting, as you call it. It, it yes. goes with the show. And Which I can't- the orchestrations. Which I can't even take credit for. A lot of people have used the kabuki thing with her. I just, it doesn't register for me. There's, Mm. there's that moment in on track. And obviously, of course, you know, CD is different from stage. Everyone says like, it works better on stage. And I saw her do it in 2017. And we'll talk about 2017 in a hot fucking second. But there's the track when uh, it's right before ladies paying when Joe's like, the script's finished. I'm going home now. She's like, you couldn't possibly, I need you here with me. And he it's like, I'll pay you more. He goes, it's not about the money. And she goes, and I'm like, oh my God, woman. See, I die for that. I think that's absolutely hilarious. I totally die for that. Except maybe because I just like, I, I love the character of Norma so much because I can recognize the pain of the talent wasted or talent led astray. But you're going too deep. I think no, sure, I'm you're not. correct, but you're going way too deep. You gotta That's go analyzing deep. days of our lives, though. You know, it's like I really like the actor. You know, I like Susan Lucci. I know she's not on Days of Our Lives. 
You know, I really got her beat there. Like, it's not about that. It's about her being possessed by the devil and her being cloned and all that shit. And see, know? I think you're being too simplistic. I think <laughs> I think you're being a basic ass hoe and it's your time to go. So bitch, let me show you the door. <laughs> that I think the I think the reality is somewhere in the middle, right? It ha- like there is the melodramatic grandeur dynasty, Joan Collins and dynasty element to it, right? But there, but you need some of that intelligence and insight to go with it. It's 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 the whole like do all the work so the audience doesn't have to see it. So you were talking about your dad with how much like he wants to see and on my own where it's just like belted to the rafters. I think whether he realizes it or not, there you could have two actresses who sing it equally well, but the one who sings it well but also incorporates character and story into it, sure. whether he realizes it or not, that's going to be more effective to him. Like Carmen Cusack's Fontaine. CC yes, bitch. Two. Yes. Yes. It's why. Yes. It's why I don't like the Eponines who go up on the I've only been pretending because it takes me out of it. It makes it but about if you the justify vocalist. it, which some people have. Then I've yet to see one justify it, but I would love to see the woman that does. I would love to see the talented actress that justifies it for me. But in terms of Norma. Sure. I think there needs to be some dignity in there in order for me to truly engage enough in the performance. It's why I actually really like Betty Buckley's Norma. Because she, she, she doesn't have a head voice. So she either screams everything or modifies the melody. What's that song? Um, The perfect year. I don't think she sings what's on the page at all because she doesn't have a head voice again. That's especially at that point in her life. Yeah. But yes, I agree with you. I think she probably from that bootleg that I watched is probably the best one, but, um, from the clips I've heard of Deborah Byrne, she's mm-hmm. amazing. That, that Deborah Byrne does great to me. I mean, I honestly, know. Patty's final performance is the one that I go that for me that is the benchmark because it's vocally what I want. It has the emotion. What I like about Betty Buckley's Norma is that she had her Norma has dignity, and even when she falls apart, there's still an element of I can't let the crowd see me fall apart, even though I'm dying inside, and that for me is the diva worship of Norma Desmond, right? I don't like watching someone be so pitiful, so relentlessly pitiful for so long. There gets to be a point where I'm just like, now it's just becoming ugly and 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 uh, messy, which is why I just have never gravitated towards Glenn's Norma. But that's me, that's my life, that's my journey. I don't know about you, Justin. I prefer to see women of a certain age treated with respect and dignity, not as drag queens. <laughs> don't you dare. But clearly, you. clearly, Justin Mendoza, everybody. Also, every norm at the end when they do I'll be May and the music gets like that Sunset Boulevard theme and she ends with a big scream. And it sort of feels like Carrie White's hand popping up from the grave, like not dead yet, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It becomes sort of horror instead of noir. And noir is very difficult to do on stage because it is such a cinematic genre. And I think part of that is noir. you just said it. It's it's on stage. So you can't do a cinematic film noir. You have to do yeah. the theatrical equivalent, you know? 
Well, I think there's a re- there's a reason why, you know, 39 Steps when it was adapted for the stage was done as sort of a theatrical comedy more than it was done as like a straightforward drama, which is what the movie version of 39 Steps is. Noir is, works better in cinema because noir requires a certain level of restraint and any kind of camp element has to sort of be almost a wink. It can't be underlined. And mm-hmm. theater, as you said, has to be bigger by nature. You're playing to the back of the house. And on top of this, we have Angela Weber, who wouldn't know nuance if it licked his earlobe. And on top of this, this is the early to mid nineties where we're coming to the end of the British mega musical, where at that point, everyone who was trying to do a big attention grabbing show thought, okay, so more, right? We have the chandelier crash and we have the turntable. So Norma's mansion has to float in midair. We have to have a car on stage. We have to have a million actors. And it's like, you could actually get away with sunset being a mid-level spectacle you need to show some of the opulence of norma's life but you don't need every hydraulic in the world to lift it up to show that could split you though screen. could you like if there was a black box version of sensible Boulevard, would it be good enough I'm, just, I'm asking you uh it would be if i directed it oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> by all means matt <laughs> Joseph, that you, Sammy. How do you like my harem? How come you get such lousy brains? Now one learns to grin and bear them. This is the biggest film ever made. What are you playing? Temple Virgin. Handmaiden <laughs> to Delilah. Let's have lunch, gotta run. Well, I think the music there is pretty good and very well orchestrated. That, I mean, that is really the, that is the, the crux of the show, what makes people sort of come back to it. I think the double-edged sort of it, the poison as well as the medicine of the show is that a lot of times the music is too much for the moment, uh, which is ironic because there are moments when it is too big, but it doesn't matter. Like, you know, when there's that musical bridge and one with, with one look, when Norman goes still out there in the dark and the music comes in. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not necessary. It doesn't even really fit, but something chemically works there where it, it's where logic goes to rest and feelings just come in, right? And Hormones that's why and the song works though. We yes. Talked about no, no, how that song doesn't work, but that's why it works. I didn't say it doesn't work. I said, it's not a very good song. It works. It, with one look and as lo- maybe I did say it doesn't work. I take it back. With one look and as if we never said goodbye, they fucking work. I mm-hmm. don't think they're very good songs in the sense that they're kind of unactable. Not is not much is ever really discussed other than the one phrase. But something emotionally and chemically is put into play with those songs, at, combined with the diva worship of "Yes, Patty, it's your final night and we're here for you," or "Yes, Betty, we're you're our diva, we love you." That Slash, kind of thing. I wanted them to bring Patty Lupone to replace Glenn Close in that 2017 revival, that would have been out of control. And that would have been out of control. She never would have done it. They wanted her to replace Glenn in LA as sort of when they fired her and they're like, well, what if you, what if you come out to LA and do the run after Glenn that way you can do, yeah, you can do all the American changes and then, then you'll replace Glenn on Broadway. And Patty's like, go shit in your hat. Yes. Wait, am I allowed to, no, I can say that. You just can't say that. Uh, (laughs) Yes. It's no, it is absolutely insulting. But that 2017 revival, 
when I saw it, Glenn got a standing ovation during the middle of that song because she, everyone kind of collectively went, is she going to hit the note? She didn't totally, but she went, I've come home at last. And everyone just went, yes, she made it alive by the end of that phrase. And there's something (laughs) beautiful about that. And like, in the sense of 1600 people just wanting this one performer to succeed so badly and so happy when she doesn't fall on her face. There's something really lovely about that. Um, combined with the fact that, you know, the music swells to a point that is very uh, triumphant. And yeah, again, that that was a little bit of a misstep, that whole production. Um, sadly, the concert the star. Yes. The star of it was the orchestra. Which yeah. Was glorious. And the music, but, and probably just the, the novelty, well, not novelty, but the, the experience of seeing Glenn after all these years come back to the role that she, you know, what did what did what didn't defined. work for you about it though? She's too old. Not just Glenn, but the production. <laughs> you need that opulence. You need the full set. Like I, again, I don't think it works other than having the gigantic mansion and all in the car and all that stuff. So what you're saying is that Sunset Boulevard is actually garbage. What it is is that it's the <laughs> it's the great voices and the huge sets that make it work. No, no. But again, I think that's what you're saying. Both. No, because I still like like that experience listening to the cast recording. Sure. I, I okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm done with that. I'm moving on now to the Betty Schaefer. Move all. on. Who is Betty Schaefer, Justine? She's the uh, love interest. The uh, the young, what is she, a reader or an intern or something? Yeah, she's a reader at Paramount. Studio. She's a reader at Paramount Studio. Uh, she's engaged to another writer, director or something. Uh, assist, yeah, an assistant director at Paramount. Uh, but she falls in love with Joe Gillis. Yes. Well, listen, you're almost doing her dirtier than the writers of Sunset Boulevard. Betty Schaefer. Yes, she's a reader at Paramount. We first meet her at the beginning of the story when Joe's not trying much to... depth to her character is what I'm saying. Not much on the page, but oh, ho, ho, give right. it to a good actress and let's see what they do with it. Because Judy um, Kuhn's a terrible actress. <laughs> I'm just being a, being a jerk. I know you are. And I'm not indulging you. you. <laughs> I'm not indulging you. I also, I would recommend people listen to Judy Kuhn on the... American cast recording, as well as watch the film with Nancy Olson, because I, it had been a long time since I had seen the film. So rewatching it last night, I was surprised at how not ingenue like Betty is in the movie and how not ingenue like Nancy Olson plays her, which really uh, made me happy because in a way, Betty is not given a lot of depth because it is a, it is a noir melodramatic film. You know, the, details are sort of for chumps it's more about sort of getting swept up in the moment and every character has their has their reason for being there betty is there for two reasons she is meant to sort of be the absolute opposite of norma desmond Mm -hmm. whereas norma is older letting time pass her by and completely in a state of denial betty is very realistic and she's young and has life ahead of her Mm -hmm. yeah And on top of that, Betty is smart and Betty is opportunistic and she's talented. And she recognizes in Joe that he is talented, that he could be more than what he's being and kind of snaps him out of the life he's been setting up for himself with Norma. Because there's a point in the middle of the movie slash, you know, end of act one in the show when Joe officially sells his soul to the devil, which is he's been sort of becoming this kept boy for Norma. And then they have, she, she throws a New Year's Eve party. 
of which they are the only guests, Cho and Norma, aside from her butler, Max, who we learn in act two was her first husband. He was the director that discovered her, uh, directed her in her first few pictures. And then when they divorced, he became her butler instead of continuing with his directing career. Because as he said, there was no point directing anyone else. She was the greatest star of them all. So he's just become her butler. Um, But when Joe realizes that they're the only guests and then Norma's professing her love to him, he tries to get out. He runs back into Betty at a New Year's Eve party hosted by Artie, his best friend slash Betty's fiance. That's the uh, assistant director that you so wrongfully said was another writer at Paramount. And she's telling him like, picture should say something. You're talented. You're good. Find something truthful. And he goes, and he's, he's been around the block 20 times in Hollywood to buy into it until they start working on a screenplay together. And she sort of reawakens the part of him that had long died since he moved to Hollywood. Like he came to Hollywood to do good pictures. And in the movie, Betty is much more sharp. She's much tougher. She's not a damsel. And the banter they have with each other is very intelligent and uh, snappy. The musical makes her a little softer and a little more ingenue because unfortunately that's how Angela Weber writes women. He cannot have them be a ball busting, like confident in charge person. If they are that, then they are Evita and they're also the devil he can only have this sort of be one of the two ways. So Betty's a lot softer in the show. She still isn't, however, she's softer. Can I speak on that though? Of course. The thing is, ultimately she's cheating on her fiance, okay? Which is not admirable. And <laughs> in order to, for, you to, <laughs> for you to still like her, because I think in the movie, doesn't she like throw on the flirtation that you're kind of like, uh-oh, girl, like, what are you doing? Like, why the, are you- being Their flirtation is a little is more sexual in the movie, but yeah, they- Yeah, where's the, Judy Kuhn, like, in a way you can forgive her because of those those softer qualities. You know, she yes. doesn't really she, love Artie. Well, because we've already established that Justin Mendoza is a liar. So just so everyone's aware, Betty does not have sex with Joe ever. They only kiss once and it's after they've completed the screenplay and she realizes she's no longer in love with her fiance who's away on a shoot. And Wait, she's- I thought she did have sex with him. Like they no! go off at the end of their duet to have sex. I took it that way. Well, your horny self probably did, but to us, <laughs> to us chaste, godlike people, God-fearing folk, we know that they just kissed. But then what ends up happening is Norma calls Betty because she now she has recognized that Joe has been cheating on her a bit by going out in the middle of the night to write this screenplay with Betty. So she calls Betty and basically says, you need to know what's up with Joe. He doesn't live on his own. He doesn't live with family. He's essentially, and she can't bring herself to say the words, but a rent boy. And then Joe, thinking that this will drive Betty away and she'll keep Joe to herself, but instead it backfires. And Joe's like, yeah, Betty, come on over. And he shows her the mansion. He's like, this is where I live. This is how I live. This is who I am. And basically it's Can him. we talk about that telephone call real quick? I, I, once again, Glenn Close is so larger than life. Oh, also her British why does she have a British accent? Because what's her face? Gloria Swanson does not have a British accent at all. No, but it's the, it's, I think it's the living theatrically of it all, you know, um, mm-hmm. that it's the elocution and it's the talking in a manner, thinking that everyone's always listening, but no one's really listening. I want to spare you a lot of sadness. I don't know what he's told you, but I can guarantee you he doesn't live with mother or what you call a roommate. He's just a, I can't say it. Poor Betty, you ask him. I'd love to hear his answer. Oh! 
That's right, Betty. Why didn't you ask me? <laughs> Betty, yet. Come over and see for yourself. And it's the same thing in the movie. I have a question for you right there. In that but moment, when Betty Schaefer comes in, mm -hmm. she sings, remember what she sings? What's going on, Joe? Why am I so scared? What was that woman saying? What melody is that? Um, it's the same melody as... Uh, when I was a kid, I played on the street. I Okay, so it's the love theme, correct? But when yeah. she comes in, it's heightened, right? And so, yes. and there's like I a like dissonant note that, underneath. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that Alice Ripley comes and just like belts that whole. If you, if you watch the bootleg with Betty Buckley, oh yeah, she takes that love song and just screams at him, which I totally dig. She only goes, "Please, can you tell me what's happening? You said you love me today." <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't like how she belts it because it's just it's coming in at a ten, but this is also because. As far as I'm aware, and listeners, I know, hot take here, Judy Kuhn can do no wrong. What I like about Judy Kuhn, what I like about the way Judy Kuhn comes in, because there's that dissonant note underneath it, she's not coming in like guns ablazing, mother courage, clutching her children. She's tentative. She's in a new spot. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. And it's very trepidatious. What's going on, Joe? Why am I so? And she also, like, she has a like, light chuckle in her voice when she sings because she's so unsure the way that some people, when they're really uncomfortable, they kind of try to laugh to break the tension. Mm -hmm. So she has like the, why am I so scared? And she's like, there's, there's the line that I hate where she goes, um, well, something about, she sounded so weird. when she's talking about Norma. She's like, she sounded so weird. Um, all the Bettys I've seen, uh, Alice Ripley, Meredith Braun, the woman who did it in 2017, they all belted her like, she sounded so weird. And Judy sings it like a human being. She sounded so weird. I don't understand. Please, can you tell me what's happening? You said you loved me tonight. Shall I just go? Say something, Joe! Have some pink champagne and caviar When you go visit with a star The hospitality is stellar so this is where you're living yes, Which I really like. And Judy also, like, she's a naturalistic actress. Like, Whereas Alice Ripley grew up to play Norma because that's in her wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Judy, I don't think, could ever play Norma. I don't think Judy could get herself to that level of operatic grandeur because she's too, she's too good at playing actual human beings. See, I agree with you. But then that falls in line with what we were talking about all along. Like, perhaps Alice Ripley is the better choice because she's so, once again, larger than life and absurd. And yes, yeah, I love Judy Kuhn. Ultimately, that is, she can obviously do no wrong. Sure. But I mean, I, 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 what I want from a Norma is someone who, I want an actress who is a bit of a weirdo, but is also just, has a lot of restraint at the same time. Whereas, like I, people like Ripley, people like Close, they need editors. They need directors who can edit them. Like I would, you know what? I would see Glenn Close as Norma if like Joe Mantello directed her and not Trevor Nunn. Cause Joe Mantello is a phenomenal editor of actors. He's really good about being like, those are five great ideas. We're using two of them. <laughs> uh, Judy Kuhn as Betty Schaefer, as I said, much softer, much warmer, but there's a, because she's so good at playing humans and because her voice is insane where she can sing absolutely anything and it sounds like it's the easiest yes. of easy things to sing. She never pushes, which is why I don't like how Alice sings the girl meets boy bit and they go through the whole... Um, I don't remember. 
So it's when it's a scene that they added in the show. Well, actually, no, it's not added. They took a scene that happens in the second half of the movie and they pushed it earlier. And it's actually a good idea. It's one of the few compliments I'll give the writers of Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> the musical. They took that scene and they moved it earlier and it's a good choice. It's Betty gets Joe to agree to meet her at Schwab's drugstore to discuss one of the stories he wrote that she really liked, thinking that they could turn it into a movie. But Joe's already kind of going off into the deep end and he knows it can't happen. And he says, okay, let me give you some writing tips because she wants to be a screenwriter and she knows she, because she's so green, she's not good enough to write it on her own yet. She needs help. And so Joe says, you know, like, okay, here are some pointers. And she takes out her notebook thinking he's going to be like, here's how you structure a screenplay. But instead he's giving her all the Hollywood notes that executives will give you. Girl meets boy, she gives herself completely. And though she loves him, she keeps one foot on the floor. No one dies except the best friend. No one ever mentions communists. No one takes a black friend to a restaurant. Those lyrics are pretty good, but the problem is, is that they're applied to a web, a pre-written Weber melody. And restaurant should not be the word that's hit, especially not the restaurant. So that line goes, black friend to a restaurant. It just doesn't, for me, it doesn't fit quite as well as it should. But that's something I always have issues with, with later Weber musicals where I'm like, especially in Let's Have Lunch, which is not as smart as it thinks it is. Just like the, um, can you lend me 300 bucks? Um, how can you work with Daryl? Like it's just, it, it, all the words don't fit. And so even if there is a good lyric there sometimes, because it doesn't necessarily scan properly with the music, it always just hurts my ear a bit. See, again, I totally agree with 100%, but I never let myself go that deep. Like I can't look at this like a Sondheimer show. Well, for me, it's not even, I don't think think it's deep because I'm just sitting there going like, why is this not, like, why is this making me uncomfortable? And that is sort of, I have to analyze it that way to figure out why. Because it's, again, it's the initial reaction of this isn't jiving with me. And why is that? And that's, that's why there's one moment in Let's Have Lunch that I like, which is when the temple virgins and handmaidens sing in a weird dissonant harmony. This is the biggest movie. Biggest film ever ever made. made. Yeah. Yeah, That that's the moment where I'm like, that whole song should be that. But (laughs) also just the way that Lauren Kennedy sings, I've spent the last month fasting. It's uh, anyway. Um oh so but I want to tell you real quick. Um Eric (laughs) and I all over the place. I know, right? Yeah, all over the place. Um my husband Eric and I, we just watched um for probably but the hundred fiftieth time in our lives, we just watched Titanic the movie. And of mm-hmm. course, cried throughout all of it as we of do. Of course, um, I almost feel like there is. Oh God, do I dare just go with this? It's similar to Titanic the movie. It's so bombastic, and you can you can pick it apart and look at the absurdity of some of those lines, and you can look at the plot holes and look at. But it doesn't really matter. You just mm. have to take it for what it is and like go with the flow. And like, let yourself cry and let yourself look at that huge spectacle. And that's why we love Titanic. And again, I will say Titanic's one of the best movies ever. Is it really? Probably not, but I will hold to oh, that. It's and absolutely one of the best Sunset movies ever made. Is one of the best musicals ever. It's not, but like, there's a similarity there. You know, you have to look at Sunset Boulevard, the musical, the way you look at Titanic, the movie. But so then I ask you, why is it that Titanic works for me and Sunset doesn't? taste one's good one's not uh (laughs) well but again it comes back to 
intelligence of how you're presenting what you're presenting, right? So like, yes, Titanic, it's bombastic. A lot of the dialogue is honestly ridiculous and shit. There's that... There's that great scene where they're taking a tour of the deck and Kate Wins is like, I couldn't help but make calculations that there aren't enough passengers for all the lifeboats. And it's like, how is that line, that line that you just said, how is that dissimilar to what you just talked about with no one takes a black friend to a restaurant? I mean, right. Part of, because, 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 because of the wonderful things James Cameron does, which is to say Titanic takes its sweet time before it really asks you to kind of go off into the deep end. Ha ha ha. Wordplay there. Um, How dare you. But I mean, you guys just watched it. Were you taken aback by how long it actually takes us to get to Titanic? It's a, it's a while. It teases you. stops. There is no time watching that movie. Okay. For all of it. (laughs) Sorry. I I forgot everybody. (laughs) Titanic is Justin and Eric's roofie in the sense that they black out the <laughs> moment it starts. But the tr- the truth is, Justin, if you if you do want to like analyze the film, and I think Titanic absolutely should be analyzed because same thing with the movie version of Moulin Rouge. When you think about it, it shouldn't work, and the fact that it does requires some analysis because if you're going to make a crowd pleasing epic like melodrama like those two movies are, it's important to see what they do right because there's a lot of craft and intelligence there same thing we're saying with on my own like people may not realize it when they're watching it because they're so so swept up in the music and the emotions but when an actor is really bringing that character into the song and that pain it heightens it to another level moulin rouge you know you don't realize it but the committed acting and chemistry of nicole kimmon and ewan mcgregor also giving full-blown movie star performances locks that movie into place titanic very similar kate winslet Leonardo DiCaprio giving movie star performances, but also James Cameron makes you wait. There is, there is a patience and there is a restraint to Titanic that I don't think a lot of the musical version of Sunset Boulevard has. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I see what you mean. But before you interrupted me earlier, 35 minutes ago, no, well, I just (laughs) want to say this, this is not even a thing about the melody. This is about just singer interpretation. No No one brings a black friend to a restaurant, which is, it's, I hate that we've said that line 9,000 times because out of context, everyone's like, oh my God, how problematic. And like, the point is that it is problematic. It's, it is, it's a studio note, right? Especially for 1949, you know, you don't do race, gender, anything like that. Like you don't touch on touchy things. Uh, and so you don't want to make a comment on anything. Everything has to be light and everyone has to go by the status quo, which is what those Hollywood notes are that Joe is making Betty sing. But because Judy Kuhn has one of the greatest voices to ever grace the Broadway stage, there's such a fluid, mellifluous naturalism about the way she sings it. So it doesn't sound forceful. So she goes, um, no one ever mentions communists. No one bl- brings a black friend to a restaurant. And you have Ripley, who's no one ever mentions communists. Like it's all belted, no head voice. And it's a million, it's a vibrato going a million miles an hour, which just for me emphasizes the like, of some of the lyrics. I need it to be a little more, a uh, little less forced and hit me over the head of it those aren't real sentences i just said but everyone knows what i'm talking about i've gone too far deep in the norma is of the world with this no i you know what i told i totally agree with you actually i see your yeah. points yeah but i hear what you mean in terms of ripley's vocals on that show because there is a lot of that like oh my god i love how going for broke she is it's why i love patty's avita she like nuances out the goddamn window it's just like here's my voice Here's my energy. I am 
pussy popping all over this stage and you are going to bow down or better yet bend over for me while I peg you with my high D's. And that is in it's it's the only it's a weird moment when an audience collectively goes, we are all going to be submissive right now. We're all going to be sub bottoms for this diva. Yes, it's quite a place. Sleep 17, eight sunken tubs, a movie screen, a bowling alley in the cellar. I didn't come to see a house. Sunset Boulevard, cruise the boulevard. Win yourself a Hollywood palazzo. Sunset Boulevard, mythic boulevard. Valentino danced on that terrazzo. Who's it belong to? Just look around you. That's Norma Desmond. Right on the money. That's Norma Desmond. That's Norma Desmond. That's Norma Desmond. That's Norma Desmond. Why did she call me? Give you three guesses. It's the oldest story in the book. Every now and then in Sunset Boulevard, a melody and a lyric come together and they work really well. One is, I've come home at last. Another one is, uh, uh, that's Norma Desmond, right on the money. That's Norma Desmond. That's Norma Desmond. That's Norma Desmond, which is, that is all the melody of Sunset Boulevard. Um, and also this is, so this is where you're living. For some reason, the way that Judy Kuhn sings that, I'm like, it just uh, makes me sad and puts me on edge. I love it. Because um, no one sang that part before. You just hear yeah. that in the orchestrations. Absolutely. But and the first time you hear the song Sunset Boulevard sung with a lyric is mm-hmm. um, when Glenn Close sings, um, once upon a time, not long ago, that works for me too, actually. Yeah. Well, and, that and that's- That changed from, broad, from London to Broadway, because I think- The London, London one is, there was a time in this business, you wouldn't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and both, uh, the original London version is more verbatim of what's said in the movie. And then mm. uh, the music, the revised version, they kind of stray away from it a bit more. And then, but they do reuse that melody. There's also it's like, okay, the melody in um, Schwab's where they go, hello, Mr. Gillis, da, 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 every movie's a circus, ba, da, da, ba, ba. Little cheesy. Yeah. And it reminds me sort of like of Joseph, but also Jesus Christ Superstar, because it sounds like a song from Joseph, the da, da, ba, da, da, ba, 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 da, 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 ba, ba, da, 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 but then I go into Jesus Christ Superstar and I go, Amazing. You could do a mashup of every movie's a circus with what uh Jesus must die. Okay, this is total side note. Do you know um School of Rock? Ish. Do you know the song um that the kids sing? Um I have so much to say to you. If, yeah, if only you would hear. So you never listen. I always wanted to go. I don't care what they're going to say. I always do that. It sounds like it's going to do that. I actually don't know anything he's written pretty much after Sunset Boulevard. You don't know Woman in White? No, I don't. Neither does anyone else. That, Judy, that was going to be Judy Kuhn's return to Broadway, sadly. As the Woman in White? <laughs> no, whatever the main character's name is, I don't know. Maria Friedman's role, because Maria Friedman had breast cancer and had to step out uh, for chemo, I believe. And Judy was going to replace her for like, I think, four months. And then she was going to come back into the show. But they decided to just close the show instead after they had announced Judy coming in. I was like, I will go oh, wow. see the show now. And then they didn't do it. Although I heard Maria Friedman is just the loveliest woman, apparently. Oh, she's wonderful. Her Lady in the Dark is the only Lady in the Dark that I listen to. And she has a great voice. I, she I has a great voice. voice. Her yeah. uh, saga of Jenny is 
fantastic. But you know what we're not talking about? Maria Friedman, we're talking about. She should play Norma Desmond. She'd be a good Norma Desmond. She her, would be a great Norma Desmond, yes. Her Fosca and passion is Norma. The way she sings it, the way she plays it. <laughs> Fosca is Norma. Maria Friedman as Fosca, as Norma Desmond, and passion. Judy Kuhn as Fosca, as Norma Desmond. No, no. Well, I, I do love Judy's Fosca, but it, her, I do too. That is not how I want my Norma. She's what I like about Judy is that her Fosca has a sense of humor. And then also like, I don't know, even when she's not having a sense of humor, it still makes me laugh. I, every time on the cast recording, I laugh when Giorgio says to her, you could spend your time giving to others. And Judy goes, give to others. And I just, I giggle every time. Cause she's like, why would I do that? <laughs> totally. Uh, she's amazing. I mean, I know everyone here is like so thrown because I never talk about her, never not once in my entire life on this podcast, but. Have you heard Q&Z. her first solo album, Just In Time? Where she sings Just In Time? Of course I do. She's incredible. She can sing anything. She absolutely can sing anything. She sang Cosette and Rags in one Tony performance. That's correct. And uh, then her, her Florence and Chess, her Pocahontas, her Amalia. Well, Okay, here's a reason to hate Sunset Boulevard, Justin. Okay. Sunset Boulevard is the reason why we don't have Judy Kuhn on the cast recording for She Loves Me. I thought her pregnancy was the reason why we didn't have her on the cast recording. No, her pregnancy is why she didn't bring Sunset to Broadway. I see. So Judy Kuhn was always supposed to do Sunset Boulevard in LA because when it opened in LA, it was like around November of 93, I want to say. And then was coming to Broadway the following November. And... She Loves Me was just supposed to be a three-month summer thing at Roundabout. And then it was, you know, a huge success. I'm like, well, we're transferring this to a Broadway theater for an open-ended run. And Judy's like, I can't do that. I'm already contracted to do Sunset Boulevard. So they brought it to Broadway with a different actress, her understudy, I think, from uh, the Criterion Theater or whatever it's called. And that actress, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Tolley. Uh, oh, Diane Diane Frantantolia, who's wonderful. I I love her Amalia. It's great. Mm -hmm. But they recorded it with her and not with Judy. So Judy goes off to do Sunset in LA, records the album, but then gets pregnant. So she can't do it on Broadway. And that's when we got the Ripley. But yeah, we don't have Judy on the She Loves Me cast recording because of fucking Sunset. Um, So I went to Lincoln Center about 11 years ago at this point. And uh, because I was about to do um, a production of She Loves Me down in Florida. And Mm. I didn't know it that well. So I, I checked out the um, that roundabout production from 90, whatever. 93. And, saw, and Judy Kuhn's on it. And she's yes. absolutely magnificent in all ways. She's Judy amazing. Kuhn? I have to see it, yes. Judy Kuhn, good in the show, Judy Kuhn. I never heard of the that. The listeners are like, stop talking about Judy Kuhn. And if people have made it this far into the podcast, they know how I feel about Judy and they can deal with it because <laughs> Judy is everything. She is Jesus. She is Lord. She is Savior. I, I, I mean, I don't. Did you talk those... about her performance as Cosette on the Broadway cast recording of Les Mis in your Les Mis episode? Yes. She sounds so good when she sings, you will live, Papa, you're going to live. So good. When she belts that and then goes into head voice for it's too soon, too soon mm-hmm. to say goodbye. Uh, she's also Tony nominated for Cosette, which is impossible to do. But Judy is just that good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think. And people, people are also going to be pissed off because Mama Mia is after this. And I know for a fact, Judy Kuhn comes up for like five minutes. All right. She's, no, she's just amazing. But yes, her Amalia is amazing. I've seen clips of it on 
on Aurora Spider-Woman and her vanilla ice cream is the best vanilla ice cream. We also mentioned that in the Me and My Girl episode because the co-host Christina said that Laura Benanti was the first time she ever liked vanilla ice cream. And I said, that is Judy Kuhn erasure and I will not stand for it. 100%. 100%. So Judy anyway, Kuhn. Anyway, what are we talking about? Sunset Boulevard. About Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and Judy Kuhn is the only reason, well, Judy Kuhn and George Turner are the reasons to listen to the American cast recording of Sunset Boulevard because- mm-hmm god are they good and especially like making something out of very little you know george not being on the cast recording for very long and making every second count and judy kuhn having kind of mediocre material and really just selling it by not going whole hog but just being a good actor i will say meredith braun gets a little bit of a gold star for me only because she is in the muppet christmas carol which is the best movie Ever. Was she in Muppet Christmas Carol? <laughs> yeah, she's the she's Scrooge's love in, in the past. Oh, the one who dumps him for being too busy working on his job. And she has that cut song when love yeah. is gone. Yeah, they cut it. They cut it. Mm-hmm. She I don't and I don't enjoy her singing voice on Sunset because it's a little um thin for Sunset for me. But mm-hmm. I get it for Muppets. I get it for the Muppets. It's on film. She's it's also on the Manchester recording of Lay Miz. There's like a five-track. EP of the man she plays Eponine and she actually sounds it's it's strong but it's a little too strong like she sounds like her head's gonna explode when she hits um the high C the belted high C hot hot damn so let's close out and go into the history of this show sort of what happened after the fact after it opened the show opens with a 35 billion dollar advance to pretty solid reviews basically all the critics were like "Eh, it's it's cleaner than London it's it's faster, it's snippier. Wouldn't say it's better, but Glenn Close, my God, is she given a performance for the ages? Glenn Close takes two weeks off uh, for vacation, and Angeloid Weber and Rug say, "Karen Mason went in for two weeks. Sales didn't dip one bit. Everyone's here to see the show." Then it turns out that they cooked the books on that. They lied and padded it by like a hundred thousand dollars per week. People were there to see Glenn Close. Glenn Close writes a letter to Rug and Andrew, being like, "You pompous beta males." I am the reason people are seeing Sunset. That letter gets leaked to the press. Faye Dunaway was supposed to replace her in LA. She gets fired. She sues. The show is in the hole for like tens of millions of dollars. They win seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, up against Smokey Joe's Cafe. They win score and book because they are unopposed. They are the only nominees in those categories. And the Tonys were going to uh, erase those categories that year. And Andrew Lloyd Webber petitioned and he said, I will withdraw Sunset from the telecast unless you reinstate these categories and nominate us for which we are the rightful nominees for. So they what? won unopposed. No they way. won unopposed. Yep, 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 yep. Um, George Hearn wins. Glenn Close wins. Uh, Who was Glenn Close up against? Rebecca Luker. And that was it. It was just them. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Who is a lovely Magnolia, but uh, it was, you know, everyone knew it was Glenn. Like, I'm sure Rebecca went to that sure. ceremony with no butterflies in her stomach whatsoever. She was like, I'll have a good time and I'll get drunk later. <laughs> She's like, everyone knows it's Glenn, it's fine. They had the Tony telecast in the Minskoff Theater on the Sunset set. So like, there was no Did doubt. Did she make her entrance from the staircase? From the, yep. She also hosted the Tonys with Nathan Lane. Like, oh, it was- come on. Give me it a was, break. Like, all they needed to do with Aaron Tveit this year was be like, so Mr. Tveit, if you do win, here's a pre-rolled out red carpet for you and a, and a banister. And oh, never mind that sign up there that says Tony winner, Aaron Tveit. We don't know if you're going to win or not. Like it's, it's preordained. Everyone knew. Everyone just knew. 
Um, they had a national tour with Linda Balgord, which shut down pretty quickly because it was the exact production on Broadway and was very expensive to run. And they thought the show will sell. It did not. They did a production in Toronto with Diane Carroll, which ran for two years. The show closed in London after three years, losing the Olivier for Best Musical to City of Angels, another musical about Hollywood in the 1940s. One that is better. City of Angels, hot take, good show. Um, Betty Buckley replaced Glenn Close. Elaine Page replaced Betty Buckley. The show closed after 900, a uh, a little over 900 performances at a total loss. The Road Company, a total loss. Uh, Went to Australia with Deborah Byrne and Hugh Jackman, total loss. Uh, I don't think it was a total loss in London, but it didn't make all of its money back. The show nearly bankrupted Rug. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And this was officially the death of the British mega musical. There were no more for the rest of the 90s. There were other British shows, but no mega musicals. And Andrew Lloyd Webber, I don't think, came back as a Broadway composer until By Jeeves in like 2002, I want to say. And that flopped. And then Woman in White, which also flopped. School of Rock was the first show of his to make money since Phantom. Rewind, by Jeeves is a reincarnation of Jeeves, correct? Mm-hmm. There's a song, the 11 o'clock number, I think, or the big number from Jeeves is called Half a Moment. Mm-hmm. And the bridge of Half a Moment, do you know what the bridge is? I love flannel on a man. This will complement his tan. Almost. The bridge really? Goes- the, no, the bridge goes da 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 That is the bridge of no way moment from Jeeves, correct? Yes. Apparently, Angelo Weber also did music for I forget what it was called. Some movie in the seventies that was like sort of a noiry film. I think it was called Seven Percent Solution, maybe I don't know. But in it. No, it was Gumshoe. Sorry, it was called Gumshoe. Never mind. 7% Solution is a movie that Sondheim wrote a song for, but a movie called Gumshoe where he uses, I believe, the exact melody of Sunset Boulevard as like background music, like the, of the title song. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, he, he knew a good thing when he wrote it. Uh, the show finally came back to Broadway in 2017. It was revived in London, I think, two times up until this point, but Close did a staged concert with the ELO directed by Lonnie Price, that came over in 2017 and played The Palace, which we both saw. It was my first time ever seeing it on stage. I had never really taken the show in as a whole, and I went with my editor, who I assumed knew the show and liked it. Because here's the thing, Justin. I know a lot of judgmental gays, older judgmental gays, were like, I can say, oh, she was great as such and such. And I go, oh, her phrasing was off on the third bar. And it's like, I am, I have high standards, but I am not hypercritical. I, t- I try to take in the whole, and if this, I think the storytelling works, it's all good. These gays are like, uh, costume didn't fit him. And I'm like, whatever. They legitimately think Sunset Boulevard is a brilliant musical, the only good Weber one. And so I went into Sunset being like, okay, here we go. This is the one that like the most judgmental people I know think is like objectively good and his best. And I'm sitting there with my editor and we're both kind of chuckling at certain moments. And I turned to him and I go, this is my first time seeing this, but have you forgotten this isn't very good? And he guffawed in a 1700C theater, which ricocheted to the rafters. And obviously you have your thoughts. I have my thoughts, but that was my initial reaction to Sunset Boulevard. Um, Yes, I I agree. It doesn't work that way. It works with the gigantic billion dollar set, I think. And you have to have an actress who can sing it too. 
I also thought what I liked about <laughs> the concert is that they at least had a better sense of humor with the show. The 90s version with the pompous design and staging. I Once again, I'm going to say for the 10th time, you're probably annoyed at this, but like you have to look at it for the spectacle it is. Like it, it's, the, it's the caramel latte from Starbucks. It's not good coffee, but it gives you what you want. It gives the people what they want. Sure. You just need to have one of those, you know? Well, next episode is all about that caramel latte. But again, but with- I love Mamma Mia. That's a good I mm, I don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I will just say I love Mamma Mia. I also think Mamma Mia is stupidity done so intelligently. It is totally. a really smart show about how dumb it is. And I'm sort of like, if you want to do a Mamma Mia, you need to be as inventive and as strategic and as intelligent as they were. All right. Justine. Yes. I have some round of questions for you and then we're going to call it a day. Okay. Number one. Not as long as Sweeney. We were still going with the we Sweeney were, Todd oh, episode, we were, by the way. We were elbow deep in Sweeney Todd at this point. I don't think because, we've gone to Greenfinch and Lindebird at this point. <laughs> because that's like, you again, that's a Sondheimer show. You can't, how, what more can you say about shut up, I'm rich, not some platinum blonde bitch? I mean, <laughs> similar to when Christine Baranski said, be still my beating vagina. All of cinema closed up shop and said, well, we can't top that. Glenn Close went on the Minskoff stage and shouted, shut up, I'm rich, not some platinum blonde bitch. I own so many apartments. I've forgotten which is which. And all lyricists everywhere said, well, I'm going to start phoning it in from now on because I can't top that shit. My favorite line she yells, though, is when she goes at the very end of the show, when she's going mm-hmm. through her whole like breakdown mm-hmm. and she screams, he, she kisses his mouth. She kisses his, his mouth. mouth. No one ever leaves a star. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. Justin? Justin. Okay, ask those questions. Yes, go ahead. I can't. Um, you can't. First question. Far too, many, far too many notes for my taste. If you had to cut a song from this show, what would you cut? Eternal youth is worth a little suffering and the ladies paying and every movie is a circus. I would rewrite that. That's just really cheesy. Honestly, every movie is a circus. Eternal youth is worth a little suffering. Cut both of them in half for me. I would cut all of ladies paying. Uh, It just, it makes me mad. And I also, I don't blame the actors in the 2017 production, but I I will say, I remember truly hating how they staged it in that production at the palace because it would just became about ogling Joe. And I'm like, oh, so we took a song that already didn't get the point of that line in the movie and we've staged <laughs> it that doesn't even get the point of the song. Got it, got it. <laughs> it's a it's a baguette on a hat on a cactus. Like it's just, it's, it's not even a hat on a hat on a person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? All right, next question. I dreamed a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of Sunset Boulevard? Wait, who did we talk about? We mentioned somebody. It wasn't Caroline O'Connor. It was the one before. We were like, she should be Norma. You were like, yeah. It was like an hour and a half ago. I who don't was remember. I was, I was a different person an hour and a half ago. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that way anymore. I don't remember, but Tony Collette would be awesome. Okay. So here's the thing. Oh God, I'm spoiling so much of the Mamma Mia episode. So much of Tony Collette will be discussed in the next two weeks, you guys. And I swear I did not plan it this way. And I had her in my brain as like someone who'd be a great Norma. And I was like, I can't say her. 
she's going to be discussed so much in the next two weeks. And then you just <laughs> said it, but it's, it's true. She's amazing. She would be absolutely wonderful. But we need to go back and rewind about an hour and a half. And we had said, and you were like, yeah, she'd be great. I don't know who that was. I'll find it. I'll find it. Find it. Find it. And there we that go. was the person that I wanted you to play at the end of the episode. So I assume you're going to do like a diva. Oh, playoff, Maria Friedman. Right? Maria, Maria Friedman. Friedman. Yes. She, I Maria would play Friedman. her, but I've, I've already had her close this out once. Uh, so I cannot play her. I think Carolyn O'Connor will be our play out. Uh, no. Have I done Carolyn O'Connor? Justin, I've been doing this podcast for so long. I've had so many divas. I don't, I've forgotten which is which. Um, don't you dare. I just <laughs> did. I Wait, did. You did Judy Kuna, obviously, right? I did Judy Kuna on like day four. I figure just because I want the audience, the audience, I want the listeners to hear her just in time. You got, it's not on Spotify. I, I don't think it's on YouTube. I think you have to download it from iMusic or whatever. You know what? Music, at, this, at this point, I've earned the right to do Judy again. I've done Sharon A. Scott twice, but that was an accident. I didn't realize I had done her once before. So if I'm going to do anyone a second time, it'll be Judy. It'll be Audra. It'll be Sally Murphy. Uh, but I think I'll do Judy as she is representative of today. The end okay. of her just in time. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> What if I just did her on a loop going, no one brings a black friend to a restaurant, <laughs> just like on loop, just on oh loop. Oh my God. So Tony Collette or Maria Friedman, uh, do we have anyone for like a Joe? Do we have anyone like, I don't oh know, gosh, who's like a fun young actress who could maybe give <laughs> Betty some gumption? Like who, like who's someone who we think could bring something fun to it? I mean, I, I a buddy of mine is who I think of, but like. Say it. Billy Ty. Oh, for uh, Joe. For Joe. Okay, I was thinking Betty. I was like, Billy couldn't be Betty. Oh, he may, Betty. Or maybe maybe he could. Billy would be a good Joe. Billy's the one I said on the pod. I don't know if I ever kept the actual audio of it, but I'll say it here again. Billy's the one I saw in Sweeney twice and found laughs as Anthony that I never knew existed. I mean, I'm biased because he's a dear friend of mine, but like, I think he's awesome like we get it be- justin you work on broadway you know broadway people nah i'm justin mendoza i know everybody hey <laughs> you're not disagreeing hey no, i am disagreeing don't say don't say facts about me in a mean voice say facts about me in a nice voice <laughs> anyway betty shaver anyway, okay oh betty shaver um and i'm trying to think of who i think would do like a really f- interesting job with betty oh you know okay i know i know exactly who who, who? Isabel Michaela. I'm saying maybe I'm saying her oh. name wrong. She okay. played Alyssa Green in The Prom on Broadway. Mm-hmm. She would she's be, great. yeah. She's so funny. She's so smart. She's got a great voice. She'd be a killer Betty. And also, I would like to see an actress of color sing that line, knowing sort of how Hollywood views people of color in that time, uh-huh. while also trying to be successful in the system and having to work with the system. There could be a light spit of like resentment and bitterness to that to that line. Ooh, what about Audrey McDonald? Not as Betty, as Norma Desmond. Yeah, I would do it. They might have to lower it a little bit because people are like, she can't bow, but like- Or or, or take it up a step so she can do it but all she, in her in her voice. Mm-hmm. She can bow. Like she sounded she amazing can. on that Wheels of a Dream that she just did at the Tonys mm-hmm. a couple days ago. It was amazing. Honey, Both of them she, she belted a D eight times a week in Carousel. They'd still have room to rattle. All right, next question. Rainbow High Spectacle. Does this show need spe- uh, production value to work? Yes, 150,000%. What if after two hours of you being like, I need that mansion, I need that mansion, you're like, actually, you know what? No, it needs two chairs and a table. Final question. 
on a scale of one to 10, one being no, 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 no way, which is from six, because I don't think you know modern musicals these days. And 10 is now and forever. Where does the show rate for you? I know one. <laughs> the title what? song was six. No, that's not how it goes. How does this title song go, babe? I'm six. I'll learn more about the title song this weekend as I prepare for that episode, which is the last episode I'm recording. God bless. I'm recording all this so out of order. So out of order. We have been all over the place with this, but I love it. Yeah, no, this is like there was like a structured or Sweeney Todd episode, but this one is just like, well, Justin, you had Justin, you had a notebook that would put Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind to shame. It was every scribble anyone has ever scribbled in that thing you like you had an outline that i could never imagine having god bless okay so what's your question about scale of one to ten how do you rate this show oh god i mean that's unfair for you personally for me personally it's like a it's like a 5.5 oh i was expecting higher from you yeah i mean i in all shows in the realm of all shows it's not great it, it's like again it's like candy you know i'm yeah. not gonna compare candy to a, a filet mignon steak you can't really compare it's like the it's like the most delicious of tiramisu's and broken glass <laughs> sure no six. Oh, six. want to sing that title song again um no i I'm, I've been very hard on this show this episode, and I know I was as well when Matt was on for his mm-hmm. obsession a year ago. I think there's there's stuff about the show to like. There's stuff about the show that I that I like. And as I said, there are things where, as is becoming a theme with this British series, pick it apart. But when it's performed in front of you, there's something about it that is chemical, that logic goes out the window, and it's just your heart takes over. Much like when Carrie forgives Big at the end of the Sex and the City movie, she says it wasn't logical, it was love. Which is on my brain. I'm kidding. You know what I'm talking about, you gay. Hey, real quick. I I almost feel like another way to look at it is like, look at all the movies that have been adapted to musicals, which I I find I'm so over. Maybe that's me being cynical, but like, I think this is by far one of the better ones. And also like, again, giving Lloyd Webber the credit he deserves. I think there's some really beautiful song like musical moments in this and i can't say that about like other movie musical adaptations he writes he writes very good music uh my issue is more like applying it to the show sometimes like Mm -hmm. i i don't think you can listen to too much in love to care and say that's a bad melody that's a beautiful melody melody it's about how interchanged with seeing is believing from aspects of love they're both really pretty love songs and like mm. it's not specific to that show like again, yeah Sondheim's songs you can't really pull that out and put another show like it's so text i mean we've always can you imagine analogy, you know? wait can you imagine hmm. swapping out epiphany and sweeney todd for losing my mind <laughs> oh my gosh no <laughs> i mean yes that be but, but I, I would do it i would so do it just to fuck with an audience but yeah that's Are, a great example you cannot do that was but you could swap out you know, arguably yeah. a lot of stuff for other stuff. In- yeah. Well, and again, that's the, his MO is having major singers cover his stuff. I don't think that was necessarily where he originally meant to go. And maybe that was never like 
on his brain when he was writing these shows. But the, but the truth is that for all of his shows in the eighties, he did have pop singers cover his stuff and you would have songs from the show come out before the show was even in rehearsal to get publicity going for it. He did it with Phantom. He did it with cats. Like it's just what he does. And the problem with that is that like, say this song takes off and then you do the, your own rehearsals with the show and you realize that the song kind of is to the detriment of the story, but you can't cut it because now 10 million people know and like the song. Mm-hmm. So it, but even kind now, of, look, 2021, can you imagine for like our contemporaries going to see their 54 below or Joe's pub show and they like put with one look in their set list? Like that would be uncalled for. You would never do that. I mean, a lot of people do as if we never said goodbye as their opening song, which is, and I would, fine. that's no one can, should do that. I'm just, unless you are Barbara Streisand or someone like that, mm-hmm. like don't, you know, I don't know. Well, no it does. Do it's, it can be vocally impressive, but as, as we said earlier, like the diva worship, the support system, the, like the unspoken je ne sais quoi of that song being sung by a true, like lady of the stage with the mm-hmm. history and the damage that comes with that is what you applaud. It's, I said it before, in a past episode, like I never understood the appeal of the title song of Hello Dolly until I saw Donna Murphy do it, knowing what it took to get her back on the Broadway stage, like the heartbreak that she endured the previous years and being like, Donna's rejoined the human race. Like I started I love, crying. I love Donna Murphy, but I love that that's the doll you chose. And of all the dollies, you say Donna Murphy. Well, because I mean, I saw it with Bette Midler right before the Tonys. And I was like, I thought it was a lot of fun, but I truly did not understand the audience losing their mind for that number. And I had done it on stage. Uh, I had seen Barbara do it in the movie. Like I never got why that song was so resonated with so many people. And again, it wasn't even that Donna was the best version of that number. She did a great job in my opinion, but it was knowing everything that it took to get her there personally in like the real world. That made me go, oh, sure. look at Donna on stage, like back joining the human race. Like that, it was that um, uh, synergy that, that I guess, is symbiotic the word I want to use? It was symbiotic. Symbiotic, sure. But then again, I think you're looking at it through the lens of like a scholar, like you are, versus like, I'm trying to look at it just like I look at sunset through the eyes of like my dad and mom, who was like an architect and a health educator. Like they- will scream and applaud over music of the night because it's the most beautiful thing they've ever heard. You know, and it's not untrue. That's not like uncultured of them. That's just like, you know what I'm saying? You have to look at it through this like other lens. Like it doesn't, I mean, sure, Donna brought that to the role, but it, the role is just meant to have that fabulous diva in a enter with a red dress and sing that song. That's what all I'm, it is. What I'm saying is that Donna was the dam that broke for me to understand the appeal of the song. That is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this that everyone else was garbage. I'm saying that Donna was the one that made me get <laughs> no, it. But also on top of that, Justin, like, what do you think this pod is about? We're analyzing things in an intellectual, educational, oh, academic I way. I know, I know, I know. I love it. How I'm just, dare you? I'm just, I'm how just dare pushing you back. Burn my corpse to a crisp and then piss all over it while mm-hmm. you then say Judy Kuhn can't act. How dare you? <laughs> How oh my dare you! How dare you! And then spit in my mouth, and then say Sally Murphy, underwhelming as Julie Jordan, and then like saunter away, and then say no one takes a black friend to a restaurant. Rest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut That's up. I'll I'm do a rich. I'll do a 
I'm going to do a 54 below show that is just like the lines from Sunset Boulevard that I can't believe are lines, but also I can believe at the same time. And just you should call it Shut Up, I'm Rich, not some platinum blonde bitch. It's well, the title is Shut Up, I'm Rich. And then in parentheses, parentheses. not some platinum blonde bitch. <laughs> and then the opening song is everyone takes a black friend to a restaurant. <laughs> All right. Justin, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for doing this with this me. It's been awesome. It's so much fun. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Well, my Instagram, once again, um, is Eric and Justin Adopt, mm-hmm. which is, um, uh, it will show you our adoption journey as yeah. we're still in the uh, in the waiting period. So um, They are. But getting closer. But getting closer, yes. And um, yeah, so you can follow me there. They don't post anything uh, funny necessarily. It's more just very, very uh, life goals. Just a lot of them traveling, being cute and married, liking children, which I don't know what that's about. But anyway, <laughs> if you want if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Uh, starting now, and I'm not going to say it in the next couple of episodes because I've already recorded those and I forgot to say it. So I'll say it now. If you have any suggestions for what you would like the next series to be, either a specific artist or a specific trend, you can DM me at Matt Koplik and let me know. Uh, I have some ideas on my own, but I am very much willing to listen to the listeners as you guys have been very good making it through this far and dealing with me and my stupid guests. Uh, If you like the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe. Uh, We are whores for a nice five-star rating for a nice little reviewee if you don't like anything i have to say if you think that podcast has become a mess say so in a review just give it five stars i will read it and take it to heart uh check us back next week as we cover mamma mia you already got a little preview of that today with and judy kuhn uh, and with and judy kuhn with the judy kuhn stuff the mamma mia stuff you'll hear more about that next week but i swear it's a really good episode it's going to be shorter than this one i i swear 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 Uh, nice and tight and we've already said it but we're going to close out for the first time as a second time Miss Judy Kuhn God bless God bless thank you so much for listening guys thank you again Justin and again have a wonderful week and check us back with Mamma Mia take us away Judy bye my life there are so many questions and answers that somehow seem wrong my life there are times when i catch in the silence the sigh of a faraway song and it seems of a world that i long to see out of reach just a whisper away waiting for me as if i'm alive do i know if he's Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.